Well, if you will, please take your Bibles once again to John chapter 11. And really, what Brother Chris saying about tonight is exactly what we're meeting to do. Praise the Savior. And I hope that as a result of the service tonight, and my prayer is always that He would receive all the glory and all the honor for us meeting. I hope that because we meet tonight, you know a little bit more about Him. That the Lord would reveal Himself to you through His Word. For that's how he shows us more things about himself. I'm glad that nobody in history, no man has ever exhausted the Bible on its wealth of knowledge. Have you ever been reading the Bible and you just, you've read the same passage over and over again and yet one day something just sticks out to you more profoundly than ever and you see something brand new and you say, well, how does that happen? Because nobody has ever exhausted the Word of God. And so while we are teaching and preaching on a very common and very uh, uh, preached about subject, I do believe that maybe this is the night that the Lord reveals something new to you. Not because I'm intelligent, but because hopefully I'm close enough to the Lord that the Holy Spirit's able to direct me, the man of God, as I'm in the pulpit preaching His Word. So maybe, just maybe, if you open your ears and you open your heart, God has something special for you tonight. As I said, not because of me, but because of him, because he wants to speak to his children. So John chapter 11, we once again find ourselves talking about the healer of the broken. And this is specifically the miracle of the raising of Lazarus from the grave. And now there is no real dispute. Lazarus was dead. And we even see that, and Jesus spells it out plainly for his disciples. They were a little confused on the matter. They say, oh, if he sleepeth, he doeth well. Jesus said, Lazarus is dead. And so Jesus now goes to do a great miracle. And we have seen so far the desperate dilemma, the delayed departure, the disoriented disciples, the different delight, the deferred dependence, and the divine declaration. And so tonight, we once again find some more truths from the Word of God. John chapter 11, we begin reading in verse 14. Uh, you, uh, hopefully by now, we've read verses 1 through 13 twice. Hopefully you're familiar with what's going on. We'll begin reading in verse 14 just for sake of time. The Bible says in verse 14 of John chapter 11, Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. To the intent ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. And said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, let us, go, uh, let us also go that we may die with him. Then when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. Now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about fifteen furlongs off, and many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died, but I know that even now whatsoever thou wilt ask of God... God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection 
and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest, believest thou this? She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. And when she had so said, she went her way and called Mary her sister secretly, saying, The Master is come and calleth for thee. Now we find ourselves now arriving in a new portion of Scripture. All that up until about verse 27, we have read and we have discussed. And hopefully you learned something in that study. But now we find Martha goes to retrieve her sister Mary and says, Mary, the Master has come and he calleth for thee. Verse 29, as soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came unto him. Now, Jesus was not yet come into the town, but was in that place where Martha met him. The Jews then, which were with her in the house, com comforted her when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying, She goeth unto the grave to weep there. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. He said, Where have you laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. Now the next verse in the Bible may be the shortest verse in the Bible but is not the verse that says the least. Somebody told me the other day that in order to get through Bible college, they had to write uh, a, a page-long paper. I think it might have been Bible college. It might have been high school. Uh, they had to write a page-long paper on John 11.35. I said, oh, how easy that would be. Because there's so much wrapped up in these next two words, Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, behold... How he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? Jesus therefore again groaning in himself cometh to the grave. It was a cave and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Martha the sister of him that was dead saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. When he thus had spoken... He cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about him with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Let him, loose him, and let him go. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary, and had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. 
But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Let's have a word of prayer tonight. We will expound on the scripture. Father, we pray tonight that you would help us. Be with us in the few brief moments we have together. Lord, may a tremendous emphasis be placed upon your word. Lord, may a tremendous emphasis be placed upon your son. And Lord, I pray that you would receive every bit of glory from the sermon preached tonight. Lord, I've done nothing in my preparation. Lord, you have helped me all the way. So Lord, I pray and I ask that you would do it the same here in the pulpit. I pray in your son's precious name. Amen. Now, I would assume that most people in the building over the course of the past few days has seen one, maybe two, or a large amount of fireworks being shot off. I would say that most of us on July 4th had plans to either go see a fireworks show or unintentionally driving down the road saw fireworks or annoyingly be trying to go to sleep while your neighbors are shooting off fireworks, which was more my case. Uh, But nonetheless, we, over the past few days, have been associated and familiar with fireworks. Now, I don't necessarily love fireworks. I think they're okay. I think they have their place. They're pretty. It's fun to shoot Roman candles at your children when we go on youth activities, so that's good. But uh, notice we didn't have a Fourth of July activity. (laughs) you got to sign a waiver for those, and that's not good. But, you know, uh, I enjoy fireworks to some degree, but my wife loves them. She loves the colors. She always asks me as we watch the show, Oh, honey, because that's how my wife talks. When she's in her annoying voice, it's more like, Oh, honey. So uh, a different impression, but she's being sweet right now, so it's, Oh, honey. She's in nursery tonight. don't know if you noticed. Oh, honey. Which one is your favorite? And I'll tell her, oh, I like that one, the one with a big boom, you know, like every guy wants to see the biggest explosion possible. And so I like the big boom, and then the one that crackles as it goes down, so it's boom. And I'll, that's my favorite, so I always tell her that. And last year we went to several Rangers games, but the one thing that we always tried doing was buying the tickets on Friday night. Because even if there's no fireworks caused by the Rangers, there's going to be some after the game. Now this year there have been a vast shortage of fireworks, not only because they're only doing it once a month, but also because the Rangers aren't hitting the ball out of the ballpark. But that aside, uh, the Rangers don't do it as often anymore. But we used to go to the Ranger game uh, simply to watch the fireworks. In fact, when my wife was pregnant with Caitlin... We had a youth activity to go to the ballpark. She wanted to go only to watch the fireworks, but she didn't want to sit through the heat of the game. And so what I did was I bought a $2.50 ticket off of StubHub to get her in the ballpark to come sit with me as we watched the fireworks. And so she loves fireworks. But one thing I can say is my favorite part of any fireworks show, and I would assume this would be just about any sane person's favorite part, is the grand finale. Even at youth camp, when it was just a bunch of rednecks lighting fireworks on a trailer, they had a grand finale. Now, some of it ended with fireworks exploding on the trailer, and you could see the shadowy figures of men jumping into the pond. But there was a lot of fun, but they even had a grand finale at youth camp. And so uh, I love the grand finale. Now, at the Rangers game, it is one impressive deal. 
I mean, you're sitting there, and we like the seats right there about third level. That's the only time a third level seat's actually good. <laughs> and you're closer to the fireworks and heaven, but you're closer nonetheless. And so you're in the third level. You're watching the fireworks there. They're going off. Boom, boom, boom. It's been fun. They're playing 80s show tunes or whatever the theme is that night. My luck, we took the youth department. It was like Aerosmith all night, so that worked out well. That was unfortunate. But, no, so you're watching the fireworks, and everything's good. But at one point, everything kind of calms down. And out of nowhere, it comes boom, 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 boom. I hope she's signing boom. I don't know how you do that, but boom, boom. <laughs> and so, <laughs> And, and so the fireworks are going off. And if you've ever been to the Ranger Stadium, the reason you sit in the third level is because you can feel the percussion on your face. Now, I don't know if that's really healthy, but it's awesome. Because as everyone explodes, you go, boom, 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 boom. <laughs> that's hysterical right there. <laughs> And, and, so, and so you see the fireworks, and I'm telling you, it seems like for about 10 minutes, all that goes on is firework, 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 and it is just so awesome. If I had one thing to compare this miracle to, it would be a grand finale. You see, for this is the final public miracle of our Lord, and I'm glad he saved it for the last because it's a good one. Now, what can we learn? Hopefully, you've learned a little bit already. But now, what can we learn about Jesus as we know Lazarus is no longer sick, but truly, in fact, he's dead? What's Jesus going to do? How does everything take place? How do the women handle themselves to the Lord? And that's what we're going to take a look at tonight. Three items. We won't be long. Hopefully, you can pay attention for the short time we'll be together. First of all, I want you to notice the definite disapproval. The definite disapproval. Look in verse 32. I want you to always know the reason I consult the scripture after giving you a point is because I want you to know where it came from. And I'm not just making up words or uh, synonyms or anything like that. I want you to know that it came from the Bible. Verse 32. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet saying unto him, Lord... If thou hast been here, my brother had not died. I want you to notice, first of all, a mutual feeling. You see, there's two real characters in the story other than Christ and Lazarus. It's Mary and her sister Martha. Now, we talked about Martha in great length last week, but Martha was the sister who ran out to meet Jesus when she first heard he was coming. And if you remember what we talked about, we see her reaction in verse tw 21. Look, the Bible says, Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. A mutual feeling. You see, both these sisters were just as close to Lazarus as the other. No doubt when Lazarus died, they both felt both felt extreme, intense pain. No doubt it hurt them both equally. Uh, the death of your brother, uh, uh, very sudden, would seem to strike a very hard chord. 
And Mary and Martha were struggling with the fact that the plan of God was for their brother Lazarus to die. And we looked last week at Martha. And Martha comes to the Lord and her first words are, Lord, if that's been here, my brother had not died. And what's interesting is, now this week we study Mary and what's her first approach? What's her first words to Christ? Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. See, they're both going through the same trial. And both of them have the same feelings. I don't want you to ever get the impression, Christian, that it's wrong to hurt during a trial. That's why the psalmist said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He put it in extreme circumstances. It feels sometimes like even if you're not dead physically, you're dead emotionally and you're dead spiritually, almost numb when you're in the valley. And Mary and Martha found themselves both in the same position, feeling the same thing, knowing that Jesus had the power to heal, but recognizing that if he had just been here on time, they wouldn't have to deal with a problem. Mutual feelings. I'm glad that the Bible gives us promises like Isaiah 41. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. I'm thankful the Word of God has promises like that to us but how hard they are sometimes to grab onto. I was explaining to the Rochesters today, sometimes when waves are over your head, it's hard to see the master of the sea. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes even though the Word of God promises us that He will never leave us and He will never forsake us, sometimes it's hard. Christian, maybe God's put those things in your life to be hard. For when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold, we studied last week, Job said. So Job understood no matter how difficult the trial, God's doing something in my life. Now, if you step back and you look at this story, no doubt God was doing something in Mary and Martha's life. But if you remember... Last week, we spoke of Martha in a very positive light. Because even though she approached Christ and said, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died, she doesn't end there. Verse 22. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. You see, I look at Martha with a positive light because even though she was hurting, she trusted the healer. But Mary doesn't. You see, Mary looks at the Lord and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother had not died. And that's all she says. You see, even though it's okay to have hurt feelings, even though sometimes it's okay to be in despair in the valley... We have to notice the mutual feelings, but look at the misaligned faith. Martha says, Lord, I know that you, if you'd have been here, my brother had not died. I know it for a fact that you could have done something. But even now, I know that whatsoever you ask of God, God will give it thee. 
And she shows a faith that is so triumphant. And she is saying, Lord, I know my brother can be risen from the dead. But Mary approaches Christ and says, Lord, if you would have been here, everything would have worked out. But she doesn't show that same triumphant faith her sister does. She doesn't exude her confidence in the Lord's power or his deliverance. She says, Lord, if you'd have just fixed it. What's tempting for us, Christian, is for us to say, Lord, if you would just do this. Lord, if you would just fix it like I see you, I'd have fixed it. Lord, if I, I know how this can work out, and if you would just do it. But that shows no faith in our God. You know, we try piecing together the puzzle pieces, and oftentimes there aren't enough pieces to fit together. When God is the creator of all, the sustainer of all, and he upholds us with the right hand of his righteousness, and he loves us. And he wants to do something marvelous in every valley. He wants to see you on the mountaintop, for it's in the valley and on the mountaintop his children are able to glorify him. God wants to help you. But we see here, Mary doesn't show the same faith her sister Martha does. You remember Elijah? I mean, the old prophet of God who stands up on, on Mount Carmel. And, and I believe, and you can believe whatever you want. I said this last week, I'm preaching, so I can believe whatever I want. And you're a, a, a believer, and you can believe whatever you want. But I believe... In the Old Testament, there could not have been a more dramatic scene, maybe the Red Sea, but I don't believe there's a more dramatic scene than Mount Carmel. Uh, 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 Jezebel's prophets cutting themselves, screaming. Not only did they do that, but they went to the extreme that they jumped on the altar willing to sacrifice themselves for their God. No Elijah just sitting over there with his feet propped up saying, Guys, you about done yet? Elijah says, hey, bring some water over here. Wet, wet, wet the altar. Do it again. Do it again. And he basically calls down fire from heaven. And that day, Elijah slew all the prophets of Baal, Jezebel's prophets. He did this amazing work through God's power. I believe one of the most dramatic scenes in the Bible. Now, if you continue reading, what happens? Jezebel begins to pursue Elijah. And she says, Elijah, you mark my words. This same time tomorrow, I'm going to do to you what you did to all my prophets. Elijah gets a little scared. He begins to get a little frightened at what's going to take place. After all, Jezebel has all the power in the land. She can do whatever she wants. So Elijah retreats. And he flees into the wilderness. And let me say this. There's nothing wrong with retreating to the wilderness as long as you do the right thing when you're there. Becoming a hermit and going into depression in the wilderness is not what you're supposed to do. See, Jesus went to the wilderness to retreat and uh, for spiritual uh, strengthening. So did Moses. Uh, Paul found himself in the wilderness. But Elijah finds himself in the wilderness and he gets depressed. And he says, Lord, just, just take my life. Can you believe a man of God, somebody who just saw that fire fall from heaven. It was his voice that called the fire. Can you believe that just a few days later he's saying, Lord, just kill me now. It's too much. 
See, the point I'm trying to make is there was a queen or there was royalty trying to kill Elijah, and in the face of that opposition, he cowered down. But let me remind you of David. See, for there was one day when David found himself in a cave. Saul pursuing his life, wanting to kill David, that was his ultimate goal because David had been anointed king of Israel now. Saul didn't like it, and so Saul's pursuing David. Everybody says, oh, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousand. So Saul becomes angry. He knows God's hand is on David, and, and Saul resents that. So Saul is seeking after David's life. So David one day is retreated into a cave. As I said, there's nothing wrong with retreating as long as you do the right thing while you're there. David's in the cave, and what happens? Saul goes in to the same cave David's in. Many of you recall the story I'm speaking of. Saul goes into the same cave and all of David's mighty men say, David, God has delivered Saul in your hand. This is your chance. He doesn't have his army. This is the time when you can take matters in your own hands and do something. If you remember what takes place, David cuts a cloth from Saul's garment. Saul leaves the cave and it strikes David's heart that he cut even a cloth against the Lord's anointed. And essentially what David says is, I should have showed more faith and trust in my God. I I shouldn't fear what Saul's going to do unto me. I should trust in the Lord. The point I'm trying to make is David had royalty seeking for his life, and there were two very different reactions. Elijah cowers down in the face of the same pressure that David triumphantly says, I will trust In my God. The Bible says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. The point I'm making is there are two paths for every Christian to make in every trial. One path of retreat and denial and uh, feeling sorry for yourself. And one path says, I will have faith in an all-powerful God, knowing that He loves me, knowing that His promises are wrapped around every verse, every line of the Bible. I will take solace in the fact that my God sees and He hears my prayers and that He cares about me. I will triumphantly show faith in my God. You have both reactions laying at your doorstep. Elijah or David? Martha or Mary? I look at Mary, and while at one point in the Bible she does something wise, learning from the Lord, and Martha's cumbered about with much serving, that day Christ taught Martha a lesson. Trust in me. Trust in me. I want you to see the definite disapproval, but secondly, I want you to notice this, and this is good. The doubled distress. The doubled distress. Now Christ has spoken with Mary. He's spoken with Martha. He arrives on the scene and he sees the face of the sisters. He hears their prayers. He hears their hurts. He sees the tears streaming down their face. In verse 35, as we took time out to notice it earlier, the Bible says that Jesus wept. Why did he weep? Was anything out of his control? Oh, heavens, no. Was there anything overwhelming for the Lord at that point? Oh, no. It's because the Lord had compassion. 
He loved Lazarus and he loved Martha and he loved Mary. That's why the Bible says in verse 36, Then saith the Jews, Behold how he loved him. I want you to notice three things about the double distress. First of all, he saw her pain. He saw her pain. Verse 33, When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. You see, as a kid, I got into a lot of trouble. Uh, I got into trouble the day I hit my sister in the face with a uh, wiffle ball bat. I got into trouble. Uh, well, really, that's the only time I can ever think. I was a really good kid. Man, y'all are... No, I'm just kidding. I got into trouble the day I, I brought home a C on my report card. I got into trouble the day I remember we had a red, yellow, and green light system. And I got a red light for my citizenship grade. And I remember I got in trouble for that. I got in trouble the day I took a younger uh, uh, a kid in the church and I gave him a purple nurple. If you don't know what that is, that is something that you will have to Google later. Be careful when you Google it. Uh, and so uh, I, I did something to, to another individual that my father did not approve of and didn't like of, so, like, so uh, I got into trouble that day. I got into trouble when we were at Jackie Sanders' uh, hunting ranch, and, and we were all having a good time, and I took a pillow, and, and we were supposed to be doing good, you know, reading our Bible, because we're on a deer hunt, that makes sense, or whatever. And so I took a pillow, and I hit a kid over the head with it, and his head came down and hit a bedpost and busted his lip. And so my dad said, okay, Andrew, for your punishment, you're going to have to go read Huck Finn. And I said, no! And I got in trouble that day. Now, how many of you would agree, hey, you've been in trouble in your life, whether it's your employer, whether it's your spouse, whether it's your spouse, whether it's your... You get in trouble occasionally. But let me make clear the trouble that I'm speaking of is quite different than the trouble that Jesus found himself in. You see, Peter was in trouble when he was sinking in, in, in the sea. You see, there's a lot of people in the Bible who get in trouble and need help from God. Jesus needed no help. You know why he was troubled? He was troubled. He was groaning in his spirit. He was struggling because he saw the hurt on their faces. He saw what they were going through. And we've said this once. We've said it a dozen times in this series. Christ sees all, knows all, and feels everything you're going through. Christian, I don't care if every person in this room betrays you, even the person sitting closest to you. There's one who will never leave you nor forsake you. There is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother, the Bible says, and his name is Jesus Christ. He sees what you're going through. Not only did he see her pain, he shared her pain. Verse 35, he saw her weeping, and his reaction was then to weep. You know, I'm so thankful that the God of the universe did not just come, create it, and then leave it to be. But in fact, he came... And he humbled himself in the form of a man or a servant and took upon him flesh so that he would come and deal with everything that I deal with. Every trial, every temptation, 
every emotion. The Bible says we have a a, a great high priest which can uh, be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. You see, he came to this earth to become familiar with what we feel so that we may have boldness when we approach the throne of grace. He saw her pain, but he shared in her pain. The Bible says in Hebrews 2, verse 18, For in in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor or help uh, them that are tempted. In other words, he went through what we went through so he could know how to triumph through it. And then he enables us and allows us and gives us the strength to go through that same thing triumphantly. He saw her pain. He shared her pain. And those are good preaching points. But the one thing that gets overlooked is he stipulated her pain. What do you mean? What do you mean? I want you to look earlier in the chapter in verse 4. You see, Christ did see everything she went through. And Christ no doubt even felt the emotions and the pain of what she was going through. But don't forget, he's the one that orchestrated it. Verse 4. When Jesus heard that, that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. In other words, what Christ said is, This sickness has been planned a long time ago. This is not news to me. I knew about this. In fact, he was the one who helped this thing go on. He says, oh, this is taking place so that I might receive glory. This is taking place so that one day somebody can preach about it. This is taking place so that others may have strength and find solace in the fact that God has power over death, hell, and the grave. You see, he says, I am completely informed because I'm the one that planned it. And we preach all the time about how God sees our pain. And we preach all the time about how God shares our pain. But don't forget where these trials come from. You see, even the devil had to go ask permission to tempt Job. There's nothing goes on without our Lord's approval. He knows every step that we take. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And so in your trial... Take comfort in the fact that God has a plan in it. You read a little bit about Joseph. You see how he started out with just a coat of many colors. And later on in his life, he's, he's second in command only to Pharaoh in Egypt. The whole time so that God could help Jacob. And God could help the rest of the family be saved from the drought that was in Israel at the time. You see, God has a plan. We think that we've got this thing figured out and we can't see three seconds in the future, much less years in the future. And God knows every step that we take. His thoughts are not our thoughts, neither are His ways our ways. For His ways are much higher than our ways and His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. God has a plan, so trust in that. I don't know if you remember exactly where you were when 9-11 happened, but I do remember exactly where I was. At that time, my mother was coaching volleyball at Joshua Christian Academy. I was at home. Uh, I, I don't know why I want to think, but I was doing something stupid. <laughs> that was a common occurrence for me. 
But I, I say that because I think I was playing like, uh, what were those skip it deals? You all remember skip it? They counted your skip it's and uh, you jumped over it as it went under your other foot. And I think what I was doing, I didn't actually have enough money to afford to skip it. So I was just doing it without the skip it. I know that sounds stupid, and I warned you before, I think I was doing something stupid. And I was doing that in the living room. I remember having my back away from the television, and I don't even think the television was on. And my mom came in and said, Andrew, did you hear what happened? I'm like, I'm kind of skipping it up, Mom. <laughs> I'm trying to get good at my invisible skip it. And she, said, she turned on the television. I remember for the first time seeing the first plane strike the first Twin Tower. I remember exactly where I was. I remember being in disbelief about it all, but not understanding the gravity of the situation as I was only about 12 years old at the time. I mean, I saw it, but I didn't really even understand what the World Trade Centers were. I didn't understand how important it was to our economy and to really the backbone of our society. And so I, I, I thought it was a bad thing. But I remember watching it, and we got in within the first 30 minutes, so we were able to see the second plane hit the second building in live feed. Now, what was unique about that is we weren't sure if it was a replay. Because we saw both buildings, but never in our wildest dreams could we imagine it happened to the same buildings on the same day. And we were in disbelief of it all. I remember the days after that, everybody became Christian. Now, I'm not saying anything negative about Dairy Queen, but Dairy Queen had, God bless America, please pray for the, hurt, the hurting families on their sign for weeks after that. Where's that now? Our society, at that point, completely turned an about face. And whether it was superficial or not, they did. And no matter who you were, you said, please pray for the hurting families. You know what? I've never been to New York. My wife has, because she's loaded. I've never been to New York, and really, I really don't care to go. But I, even though I may be half a country away, I'd say I felt what they felt that day. And I believe anybody with any ounce of patriotism in them felt that feeling that day. I say that to say this. Our God has the same feeling every time you go through anything. You feel like you're about to drown? Guess what? He feels it. When you feel like all hope is lost, guess what? He feels it. There's nothing He's not familiar with. And, and I, I, I try to illustrate it, but even the 9-11 illustration is a weak illustration of how intently our God feels for you. We all felt it that day, but no more does it, can we ever feel than our God feels for His hurting children. You see, we, we need to understand that God, He has our distress. It, it's in His heart just as much as it is in ours. Uh, so we've noticed two things now. And we've covered those in about 30 minutes. Now, I don't know how long this next point is going to take to develop, but I'm excited to share it. I want you to notice with me finally the differentiated deliverance. Now that's the final point of the whole sermon series. So we're done. Okay, we're done. 
But I want you to notice, you've heard a lot of sermons on Lazarus. You've heard, you've heard no doubt, a lot of sermons on Lazarus, come forth. We've heard those sermons. But I want you tonight to notice with me a few differences between the resurrection of Lazarus and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, I know we're kind of getting off track from the healer of the broken, but after all, why do we meet the first day of the week to celebrate our Lord's resurrection? To celebrate that He did have power over death, hell, and the grave, and that He lives and reigns forevermore. And I preached a sermon a while back saying, how shameful is it on us that we don't often enough preach on the resurrection? It's like we wait until Easter until we preach about the resurrection. What a shame! For if our God never raised, we have no faith. So I want you to notice the differentiated deliverance. Now, I am not in any way trying to minimalize or degrade the amazing miracle in Lazarus's life. But let's just say it wasn't as good as Jesus's. I want you to notice a few things with me. What was so different about Lazarus and Jesus in their resurrection? First of all, in verse 39, I want you to notice the rotting. Verse 39, the Bible says, Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Now we know that four days is different than the amount of time that Christ spent in the grave, is it not? Christ spent three days in the grave. And you may think this is insignificant, and to the person who doesn't study their Bible, it may seem insignificant. But if you know anything about the Bible, everything has a purpose. Even down to numbers, even down to types, even down to Noah needing to look up in the window and not out the window. Everything has a purpose. So why did Lazarus spend four days and Jesus spend three? Because in the Old Testament, it was prophesied that Jesus would not rot or that he would not decay. Three days he was in the grave, the Bible says... Uh, in in uh, Mark 16, then arose Peter and ran into the sepulcher. Stooping down, he beheld the linen clothes laid behind, beside themselves. Psalm chapter 16, verse 10 says, For thou wilt not leave thy soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. In other words, you will not allow Jesus to see decay. Three days, not four. Everything has a purpose. In Acts, we even see in Acts chapter 13, the, a, a confirmation that this promise was kept. Verse 34, And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Wherefore, he said in another psalm, now notice this, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. And so the Bible, all the way back in Psalms, promises that Christ would not decay, that he would not corrupt, but that he would raise before that process took into place. The difference is that Lazarus did not need to be pure. Lazarus could rot, and Jesus could bring him back. But see, there was nothing unpure about my Savior, even down to the life he lived and the lamb that represented him, he 
is pure. So if Jesus had seen corruption, he would have felt impurity. But my Savior came forth pure as can be, holy as can be. He rose on the third day, not the fourth. Now that's one thing we need to note, the difference in the rotting. Secondly, I want you to notice the difference in the rock. The difference in the rock. Verse 41, the Bible says this. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. I want you to notice that this was done in human power. There was a stone covering the grave of Lazarus, very similar to how it would have been in Jesus. I don't believe it was the same, but I believe it was similar. There was a stone there, and they commanded that the stone be moved away so that Jesus could get in to see Lazarus. But that's not the way it happened with Christ. No man rolled the stone away. In fact, when Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, approached the grave with spices on the third day, they were wondering themselves how they were going to move the stone because they couldn't do it themselves. The Bible says in Mark chapter 16, verses 3 and 4, And they said among themselves, Who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? They didn't know because it was far too large for them to do it. So how did Jesus' stone, how was it removed? as opposed to how Lazarus's was. The Bible tells us exactly who moved the stone. In Matthew chapter 28, the Bible says in verse 2, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. So the angel of the Lord descends from heaven and moves the stone. Now, I may be a little different than some people on my belief here, but I believe any time we see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it is a Christophany. And no, that's not a mobster or mafia hit. A Christophany is an Old Testament appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, there's no way. Why would it refer to him as an angel? I want you to notice that when Abraham approaches the burning bush, it is first the angel of the Lord that is in it, and then quickly he becomes the Lord or the I Am. So the angel of the Lord is in the bush, and the angel of the Lord claims to be, I am that I am. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. The angel of the Lord is the same angel of the Lord stood with an outdrawn sword in front of Balaam's donkey. And Balaam's donkey said, Balaam, what have I ever done to you to make you uh, threaten to beat me like this? It was Jesus standing in the pathway. You say, that sounds a little crazy. Uh, You can think whatever you want, but I believe Old Testament appearances of the angel of the Lord are Jesus Christ. Why else would he be found in the burning bush and then later be called the Lord? Not only did he stand in the way of Balaam's donkey, but he was the same, the angel of the Lord, who as Abraham raised his hand with his dagger in hand, ready to thrust it into Isaac, it was the same angel of the Lord that said, Hold on, Abraham, for now I know that thou fearest me. It was the angel of the Lord. It was Jesus Christ. 
The angel of the Lord is uh, referred to as Gideon speaks to him, and yet Gideon later refers to the angel of the Lord as the Lord. What I'm getting at is, the angel of the Lord is Christ. So when the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 28, verse 2, that the angel of the Lord descended and rolled his stone away, Jesus didn't need anybody's help. There was no centurion presence that needed to do any work. In fact, I don't believe there was any angelic presence that needed to do any work. If you read the Bible, the angels just sit on the bed. They just kind of sit there. For the angels can't do anything apart from God's own power. So the Bible says, The angel of the Lord descended from heaven and rolled back the stone. How did it happen in Lazarus' day? Oh, just some men moved it. But the day that my Lord triumphantly rose over the grave, showing victorious that he would reign forevermore, that day he needed no help from anyone. It was his own power that removed his own stone. There's a big difference. And yet it's kind of similar because the same power that delivered Christ was the same power that delivered Lazarus. It was all Jesus' power. So we see the rotting, the rock. I want you to notice thirdly, the raiment. Now there's significance to everything. It was the raiment was the next thing. Verse 44. And he that was dead came forth. Now this is Lazarus. He that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about him with a napkin. In other words, there is a walking mummy that comes out of the grave. And really that's the best way we can picture it, because Lazarus was bound. He was bound with the clothes that they had buried him in. And so, if you want the best picture, I picture a Scooby-Doo mummy walking out of the tomb. You can, you can picture whatever you want. I'm just saying I have an elementary interpretation of the Bible. And so a Scooby-Doo mummy comes out of the grave, and uh, I imagine him kind of trying to speak, but his uh, face is bound with a napkin, so he's... And Jesus' command is that they would go remove... How did you interpret, mm, Miss Angel? Okay, tried to talk. You could just pretty much do that the whole time I preach. Trying to talk, trying to talk, not making any sense, trying to talk, boom. <laughs> and so, uh, Lazarus comes out of the grave. Lazarus comes out of the grave. Jesus says, oh, remove the uh, grave clothes. He's bound in the grave clothes. Remove those. Remove the napkin, for he's bound in that. The difference is Jesus' raiment was not binding him. You see, if death couldn't hold my Savior, there wasn't no amount of cotton or twill or synthetic blend ever going to hold him. And Jesus' clothes, I believe you can rightly assume as you read the Bible and the Gospels, his clothes were laid neatly aside. The Bible says they were laid. In other words, that helps me think that they were laid gingerly or neatly. His clothes were laid neatly to the side. I believe the Bible says, uh, let everything be done neatly and in order. So I, I think that the, uh, Jesus laid his clothes over to the side. There's a difference here. See, Lazarus had no power apart from God. 
Jesus was God and had power to release himself from everything. There's a difference in the raiment. And finally, I want you to notice, and we're almost done, I want you to notice there is a difference in the rag. A difference in the rag. Look in verse 44. The Bible says, And he that was bound came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. The Bible says in John verse 20, uh, chapter 20, verse 7, that Jesus also had a napkin involved in his burial. However, his napkin was much different than Lazarus in the fact that Lazarus still was over his face. And Jesus is, the Bible says in verse 7, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, so they were set apart, and the napkin was set apart, but wrapped together in a place by itself. So you got the clothes over here and you've got the napkin over here. They're apart from one another and yet they're both neatly folded. What's the significance? Is there any significance? I believe everything has significance in the Bible. And I believe sometimes I'm not intelligent enough to pick up on it, but everything has purpose because that's my God. And so the clothes are here, the napkin's here. Can I ask you, maybe you know the answer, maybe you don't. If you get up to go to the restroom while you're dining, how do you tell the waiter that you're not done with your food? You neatly lay it on the table. Now, if you crumple it and throw it on your plate, or to the left of your plate would be proper etiquette, what does that say? I'm finished. But if you neatly fold it, that means I'm not done. Or, in other words, I'm returning. Now, you can think what you want. I don't know if this is truly valid, but I choose to believe this. The reason the napkin was folded is Christ was saying, Well, I'll be back. Oh, Don't you worry. If it was just crumpled up and thrown off to the side, no significance. But my God, this day, through the eons of time, saw the importance of just one napkin. And while Lazarus came out of his grave with his face folded up in his napkin saying, Help me, help me, help me. And Jesus says, Oh, take him out of his napkin. Jesus needed no help. And as he departed, he left one lasting message. Oh, I'll be back. Oh, I'll return again. Boom. (laughs) What I was saying earlier before the offering is, I want to be a man who looks forward to the appearing of my Savior. I want to live righteously enough that I'm not ashamed when he comes back. I want to do for him what I've been put on this earth to do, which is spread the gospel message every chance, every opportunity I have. So that when he returns, and I was telling my wife the other night, I said, honey, you know why our bed's facing the east? She said, well, that's the only way it would fit in the room. (laughs) I said, no, I'm much more spiritual than that. 
so that when my Savior comes back like a thief in the night, I can just stand up and look him in the face. Now, I was lying. But I wish I were that spiritual. I wish I looked forward every single day. I wish every day I would remember the promise that old that Jesus left laying in that tomb, something that seems so insignificant, something that seems so small, just, just a little napkin over on the side by itself. But he said, I'm coming back. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will also come again and receive you unto myself. Jesus himself exclaims, oh, I will come back. I have come to die, but I will come and rise, and then I will return to take my children home. I want to be a man that looks forward to that. See, all throughout the Bible, it promises that Christ would return. This is nothing new. You see, Jesus only bruised the head of the serpent when he died and rose again, but he doesn't take care of that serpent, and if If you're a man from Texas, you know how to take care of serpents, right? You cut the head off. Seen Dad a few times with hoes and shovels. I say, Dad, go get the gun. We got plenty of... No, I got a hoe. What do you do? You take their head off. See, he's only bruised the head of the serpent now. You know when he takes his head off? The day he returns. The day he calls his children home. The day everyone else that has ever said a negative word about Jesus, oh, you just need him as a crutch. Oh, you just need him to, for your own little pitiful life. You need to have some higher power to believe in. Friend, you're right, I do. Because I have no power in myself. I hope I'm a man that looks forward to his returning. Because it's real. It's going to happen just as sure as you and I are going to leave this building tonight. He will return for me. He's promised it. I'll leave you with this question. Are you looking forward to his returning? I mean, when he returns, are we going to be face up or face down? When he returns, are we going to have a smile or are we going to be shame-faced? Are we going to say, oh, Lord, I'm so thankful to see her. Oh, Lord. Are you looking for that blessed day when he splits the eastern sky and says, Come on, church. Come on, church. Are you ready for that?